This morning we will look at 1 Samuel chapter 9 and then into chapter 10 all the way to verse 16. Here in the book of Samuel, we see God establishing the throne in Israel. Prior to this period, the nation was a confederation of tribes. And here in the book of Samuel, they come under the rule of kings. And what God is doing is that he is establishing the throne that one day King Jesus will sit upon. We've come to a new section in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Chapter 9 through 15 is the story of Saul. Now, this is King Saul in the Old Testament, not to be confused with Saul, who is Paul in the New Testament. He is the first king of Israel. This is all taking place about 3,000 years ago. In chapter 8, Israel has demanded a king. But in doing so, they have asked for a king like the nations around them. And they are asking that they would be ruled by a king instead of by God. It's not a good development. So God chooses Saul here in this passage. Saul's name means what was asked for. Now, where we're beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9 through verse 16 of 1 Samuel, here's a, a quick outline of what we're about to read in God's Word. In the first two verses, we see the family background of Saul. Then in verses 3 through 27 of chapter 9, we see Saul's meeting Samuel. They did not know each other. In verses 1 through 8 of chapter 10, we see Saul being anointed as king. In 9 through 13 of chapter 10, we see three confirming signs that God has chosen Saul. These are signs primarily for Saul that he would know that God has chosen and anointed him to be king. And then in verses 14 through 16, Saul has a conversation with his uncle. Now, I'm glad we have a lot of kids with us this morning, as we do on most Sunday mornings here at URC. This is a longer reading of Scripture, but I know that each of you like long stories. Because every time your parents say, one more book, you pick out the biggest one before bedtime to read. So I know you could pay attention this is a story about Saul becoming king, and it teaches us that God is in control of everything. But in this story, there's a lot of mention of donkeys. So kids, if you're having trouble following along while we're reading the scripture and during the sermon, just count how many times you hear the word donkey. And if you're an adult who gets distracted, you can count too. <laughs> Let us pray and ask for God's help in the reading and preaching of his word. Would you join me in prayer again? Our Heavenly Father, we come before you looking to your word, because in it there are the words of life. So I'd ask that you would help me this morning to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Help me here in this passage to declare your whole counsel as it is revealed in Scripture. Lord, you are near to all who call on you in truth. So teach us to do your will, for you are our God. Let your Holy Spirit lead us. In Christ's name we ask. 
Amen. Hear the word of God from 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 9, verse 1. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerah, son of Bekurath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise, go, and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalashah. But they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called the seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up to the hill city, they met a young woman coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have sacrificed today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Samuel came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel said, answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place. For today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And, from, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? 
Then Samuel took Saul and his young men and brought them into a hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you, eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul rose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he had passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave, Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, the prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him and prophesied among them. And when all knew him previously, saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And the man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Saul, Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. One of the greatest accomplishments of the last couple decades is the development of technology to deal 
with the problems we face in this world. By God's common grace, there are many innovations that provide solutions for many of life's challenges. For example, home security systems are becoming more and more technologically advanced. You can see on a video who has rung your doorbell, and you could actually answer that from your cell phone even when you're not at home. We install home security systems for protection from intruders, and we gladly pay for monitoring in order to have peace of mind. But if you've ever had a home security system, your confidence in that system is always lessened after the first false alarm. And after you've experienced several false alarms, your confidence in the technology to protect your home is waning. What is the worst thing is when you're on vacation and you get the call from the monitoring company that the alarm is going off. Trust me, this is bad. This has happened to me. It reminds you that you are not in control. You're not in control. As Christians, we want to believe that God is in control of history, all of history. We believe God has a plan. But sometimes it takes something as simple as a false alarm to shake our confidence in God. If you're like me and it doesn't often take too much to shake your confidence in God, then this story is for you. The author of Samuel has taken his time to illustrate that God is in control of everything that happens in history. And in this story, the story about the first king and the donkeys, we see that God isn't just guiding the big stuff, but he's governing every moment of every day of every person's life. This story helps us because it's one of the many places in Scripture that teaches us that God is governing everything for his own glory and for the good of his people. So I want us to consider 1 Samuel chapter 9 through chapter 10, verse 16, under three headings this morning. The first being God governs all his creatures and all their actions. Then the second being the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And lastly, we'll consider, as we just sang, God moves in a mysterious way way. God governs all his creatures and all their actions. The important part to understand and rightly interpret chapter 9 here at 1 Samuel is verse 16. Look back there with me. Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. This is the Lord speaking to Samuel. It's plugged right here in the middle of this, what would seem like an interesting story of coincidences. And God is assuring Samuel that he will choose the next king of Israel, that he is ordering the events of men, 
that He is the providential ruler of this universe. The Shorter Catechism in question number 11 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Chapter 8 ended after the people asked for a king. Samuel doesn't say, all right, get in line, turn in your resume. Who wants to be king of Israel? He sends everyone home. And as we read the book of Samuel, we wait. Who will be the king? And then chapter 9 opens with the story about Kish and his tall, handsome son Saul. God will give them a king. God knows who the king is. Samuel doesn't. So what does God do? Well, first, some donkeys need to escape. But not just any donkeys, donkeys of a certain man. Saul's dad's donkeys. Then, the story goes on, Saul and his servant, they travel to five different regions, and they can't find the donkeys. Now, this would have been a common occurrence. It's an agricultural world. And for donkeys to escape. But this seems to be pressing the extraordinary that they just couldn't find these donkeys anywhere. So they're ready to return home, and the servant remembers that there's a man of God in the nearby city. And then Saul points out to the servant, Well, if we're to go see the man of God, what payment do we have for him? How could we honor him? We've we've eaten all our bread. We've been on the road looking for these donkeys now for days. And in the Hebrew, it's as if the servant reached into his pocket and pulled out a half shekel of silver and said, uh, I, I didn't know I had this. We have a, we have a shekel of silver. Let's, let's go to the man of God. As they approach this, the city, there's these women coming out to draw water. And if you were reading the Old Testament, women coming to a well, oftentimes it means God is up to something particular. Abraham sends out the elder servant of his home to find a son for Isaac. And that servant meets Rebekah at a well. And then Isaac's son, Jacob, as he's fleeing the death threats of his brother Esau and heading to his uncle's land, he meets Rachel at a well. And these women happen to know who Samuel is. They happen to know where he will be having dinner that night. There will be a sacrifice. The people will gather at the high place. And they'll wait for Samuel to arrive to bless the sacrifice before the meal. And on their way into the city, Saul and Samuel happen to cross paths. Saul doesn't know who Samuel is. He says, where's the seer? And Samuel says, it's me. Come up, I've prepared a meal for you. The writer isn't just recounting remarkable coincidences. God has told Samuel the day before that he will send the next king to him. There really are no mere coincidences in all of life. No coincidences. It reminds me of the story of Michael Riley. You may not 
remember his name off the top of your head. On March 14th in 2008, the University of Alabama found itself trailing Mississippi State 59-56 in the final seconds of the first quarterfinal game of the evening session of the SEC basketball tournament. Michael Riley for Alabama sank a last-second three-pointer as time expired, sending the game into overtime. Not only did that shot extend Alabama's season for the moment, but as they were playing in overtime, or tornado touched down in the parking lot outside the Georgia Dome a few minutes later. If he doesn't send the game into overtime, there's roughly around 14,000 people exiting the Georgia Dome as a tornado touches down. Okay, we're talking about thousands of people. Of course, God would, would order history and guide those events. In our story, we're talking about the first king of Israel. But you may ask, what about ordinary folks like us? Well, Christ said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus says, your heavenly father knows the inventory and the worth and value of every bird. And you are more valuable to him than birds. He knows every hair on your head and everyone that used to be there and what color it really should be. He knows everything about your life, your coming and your going. None of it is news to him. He is never caught by surprise. Proverbs 16.9 says, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 20, 24, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Oftentimes, we panic when the donkeys get lost. We panic when we're on vacation and the alarm is sounding in our home. We panic and we are rightfully concerned because of a medical diagnosis or an under unexpected development on the job. This is a passage, one of many passages in Scripture that remind you, those who trust in the Lord, that none of this takes your Heavenly Father by surprise. And none of this will keep him from accomplishing his purpose from your life. In fact, it's probably part of what he is doing in your life. But it's hard to read providence. The Puritan John Flavel famously once quipped, providence is like a Hebrew word. It is only understood when read backwards. 
In Hebrew, it's read from right to left. And so this story is not meant to encourage us to then look at all the little circumstantial happenings of our life and try to discern the signs and the stars and figure out, well, maybe God is leading me here. Maybe God is telling me to do this. I remember as a kid sitting out in the backyard playing basketball and always saying, if I make this shot, then that means X. It would take a long time, and eventually I'd get the outcome I was looking for, but it never really worked out. No, this is a story that helps us say when we can't understand in the moment what God is doing in our lives providentially, it's okay to trust Him and obey Him in what He has told us. He hasn't burdened us with the knowledge of tomorrow. But He has told us what He's required of us and revealed it in His Word. And so we obey what He has clearly shown us as we move forward. And quite often we can look back at the book of Providence and we see God's hand. But oftentimes in the moment it is very difficult to understand why the donkeys got out and why we can't find them. And in those times we are to do the next best thing that God has commanded to us and live by what he has revealed. Next, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Skip ahead to chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. You will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Saul, as I told you, was not seeking the throne. Saul was not seeking to be king over God's people. God had chosen. Now, we're given a very clear description of Saul as being the most likely to succeed. He was a tall handsome, rich kid. He had every privilege. He had the, he's learning to run his father's estate, as it would appear. Many people would have picked him as the, the next king, as we'll see later in chapter 10, when he is put before the people. Everyone says, yeah, head and shoulders above everyone else. But Saul wasn't seeking to be king. And so God gives him Three confirming signs. He was to meet two men by Rachel's tomb who would tell him that the donkeys were found. Then he was to meet three men going up to Bethel. They would have three goats, three loaves of bread, and a skin of wine. He was to take their provisions. And then he was to join with these group of prophets. Now, when Saul joins here with the group of prophets, it's very interesting. And a lot of people wrestle with, what is happening here? We see a band of prophets who are going, and they're musicians. They're singing praises to God. They most likely were disciples of Samuel, and they're going around, and the, the, the nature of their prophecy is that 
they're leading people in songs of worship. And after Saul is anointed with oil, the Spirit of God comes upon him and he participates in this. He is the anointed one, the one that God has set apart. To this point in the Old Testament, only priests have been anointed. Now the king is anointed. Later we will see prophets also anointed in a similar way. But here, he is anointed to be the king. But the change that takes place in Saul is a limited change. It's a limited change. It says that he's made into another man, that he's given another heart. And people wrestle with, was Saul converted and then later walk away from God and apostatize? Was he, or in New Testament terms, regenerate? Was he born again and then walked away from God? I don't think it's the case. I think it's very clear from the text that the change that took place in Saul was one preparing him to be king. It says that he's given another heart. But it's different language than the prophet Ezekiel when he speaks of the new heart that is promised in the new covenant. Saul is endued with the Spirit of God, empowered for the task of being king. But as we'll see very quickly in the story of Saul, that there isn't fruit of faith and repentance. There's no fruit of him being truly converted and born again. In fact, Saul is the epitome in Scripture of the literary tragedy. And there's hints of it all over this chapter. Back in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 9, the writer, as he's introducing Saul to us, wants to make sure we know where Saul came from. He's a Benjamite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. And he lists six of his generations going back. Well, if you went back six generations in the history of Israel, you went back to a time of civil war in the book of Judges, chapter 20. And the tribe of Benjamin was on the wrong side of that civil war. And they were a disgrace to God's people. So from the very beginning that God would choose someone that the people asked for a king from the tribe of Benjamin, it's concerning. But, Paul, but Saul looks to part. But did you remember in chapter 9 that when he meets Samuel, he doesn't recognize him. Chapter 7 of 1 Samuel says that Samuel's ministry as a prophet went across the land from north to south. But Saul doesn't know there's a seer. He doesn't know there's a man of God. And when he meet, encounters him, he does not recognize him. In chapter 10, Samuel told Saul, after you're anointed and these signs come, do what your hand finds to do. You're going to pass by a garrison of the Philistines. Do what your hand finds to do. You're supposed to be the deliverer of God's people. When the Spirit of God rushed on Samson, the judge, the Spirit of God led him to fight God's enemies. Here Saul, as the Spirit of God rushes upon him, as he's equipping him to be king, he still does not go after the garrison of the Philistines. The writer is, is painting this picture of a man 
chasing donkeys. God's leaders in the Old Testament were, were shepherd folk on the backside of deserts watching sheep. But here this man who's called to rule and lead God's people can't keep track of the donkeys. Externally, he looks like the king, but we're already shown that internally much is lacking. God is setting up a contrast with the godly king by first giving them a king like the nations. He purposely gives them a king that outwardly looks the part, but inwardly falls short. But no need to panic. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1. God is giving Saul as a judgment against his people. But even through Saul, he is caring for his people. Did you notice in 9 verse 17, he said that Saul will restrain his people. His people are looking to throw off his rule so he'll give them a king like they asked and he'll point them back to saying, uh, we need a king, we need a king, we need a king who is after your heart. We need a man who's not judged by outward appearances but whose heart would be for the Lord as our king. And then in verse one of chapter 10, when Samuel anoints Saul, what does he say? Did you notice? Samuel keeps calling him a prince. Because that's what God said. God said Saul is to be the prince over his people. Very clearly indicating that God is not in any way ready to abdicate the throne and the rule and reign and governing of his people. Saul is but a prince over his people. He's a very flawed man. He will do much harm, but God is still their king. In verse 1 of chapter 10, you see God's care for his people, and he said, this man will be the prince over my heritage. His people want to disown him. He's unwilling to disown them. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded that God does not give us up, that there are temporal consequences for our sin, but his rebuke and his correction is because he has received us as children, and a good father corrects wandering children. This also helps us because oftentimes in life we find ourselves under the governance of deeply flawed authority figures. God will allow his children to have ungodly bosses and teachers, professors, sometimes parents. And here in this passage, it reminds us that when we find ourselves in places under the rule of ungodly men and women, God has not abdicated his throne. He has not abandoned 
his heritage. And so therefore, we can honor and submit to the worldly authorities that God places above us temporarily. Until they forbid us to do what God commands, or until they command us to do what God forbids, we can trust that He is truly King and that their rule in our life is temporary. God is always on His throne. The King's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And lastly, in verses 14 through 16, we see God moves in a mysterious way. What a strange way to end this story. Just here, Saul's heading home. What Samuel has told about him has been shown to be true, and his uncle comes out to meet him. You ever think about that? All the conversations that happened in the course of from Genesis to Revelation, some are chosen, some aren't. This one's chosen. Between Saul and his uncle, a discussion about where are the donkeys and where did they go and what did Samuel tell you? It shows us something of, about Saul, but it, it does kind of pull the passage together in an interesting way. This has been a, a passage about secrecy and concealment. Dale Ralph Davis points out that in, in the Hebrew, the verb mesa, to find, is repeated 12 times in this section. It's about finding what is lost. So there's the talk of the donkeys over and over again. And then the shekel that is found. Then they're found by the, the women at the well. And then they find Samuel. Then Samuel assures that the donkeys have been found. And then he gives them three confirming signs that the language of finding is there too. And it's almost coming to the end here and it's just, God is at work. You may not understand how he's at work. His plan is unfolding. Oftentimes, it's mysterious as it is unfolding, but he's always working even when we don't see it. So this conversation is a the perfect ending to this section. As Saul conceals from his uncle and they speak of the donkeys that are being found and he doesn't tell them about the kingdom and what all that Samuel told him. God is at work. It's not Saul's agenda. It's not even Samuel's agenda. God is doing something for his people. But at this point and it's not the first time and it's not the last time. It's mysterious to God's people what exactly is happening. How God is dealing with them. In the course of providence, God's governing of all creatures and all things, we run into great difficulties. We suffer many tragedies in this life. And we need to be reminded that in ways we could not fully comprehend this side of eternity, God is working. That He is working in the good, that He is working in the bad, 
that all of it is under his governance. We see this supremely in the cross of our Lord. It's in Peter's Pentecost sermon that he stands up and he looks at his fellow Jews and he says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter is standing on the other side of the cross. He went through with the rest of the disciples, a great moment of confusion. God, what are you doing? The wrong guys are winning. This is not just. These religious leaders who have taken Jesus and handed him over to the Romans to be crucified, what is happening? And now on the other side of the cross, he sees that this was God's perfect plan to save that it wasn't just something God knew about, but it's under his very orchestration that the motives of wicked men are subject to his providence, even. In other places in the New Testament, it speaks of the gospel being mystery. The mystery that's not known for generations, but revealed through the apostles and the prophets. See, we don't just preach providence alone, because to teach about God's providence apart from the cross does not give us great courage to face tomorrow. Because it is at the cross that it is undeniably demonstrated that the God who governs all things is not a cruel tyrant, but he is just, he is good, and he is gracious. That if he can save sinners by wicked men crucifying his only son, he could be trusted with tomorrow. If there are alarms going off in your life, Jesus, the one who died for his people, who died in your place for your sins, invites you to come and lay your panic at the foot of the cross. And it's because of the cross that the Apostle Paul can write things like this. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Whereas we sang with William Cooper's words, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Let us pray and ask, for God's blessing on the preaching of his word.
all your works shall give thanks to you. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And your saints here today bless you. We are reminded that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. And we believe as your word has shown us that you are righteous in all your ways and kind in all your works. Our great God and Savior, help us to persevere and to hope in your steadfast love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.